I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can register for free and open up our entire online archive for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Towards the end of the first year of Anita Bruckner's death time, I was remembering my meetings and conversations with her. What we talked about. Art, books, the literary world, France, friends in common. What we didn't talk about. Her early years, her personal life, politics, or anything practical. No exchange of recipes. No mention of sport. Anita, what do you think of Ireland's chances in the Six Nations? Was not a question that ever came to my lips. I remember her telling me that she'd just finished a novel, and so, for the moment, was doing exactly what I like. I said, teasingly, well, in your case, that probably means rereading Proust. Her eyes widened in alarm. How did you guess? On another occasion, we discussed Simonon. I had mainly read the Maigret stories. She had mainly read the Roman Dur, which she greatly admired. I asked her to recommend one. She was, as in everything, quite firm. She cruel, she said. This conversation must have taken place before 1999, as the FNAC sticker on the back of the copy I brought back from my next trip to Paris is priced in francs, 37.70. I remember taking the novel on a few holidays, but never getting around to it. Something about the title kept putting me off. That cosy French chez, followed by a harsher, doubly foreign surname, Cruel, K-R-U-L-L. But I must have started it once, because there was a boarding card stuck in at the end of the first chapter. And so, twenty years on, it was time finally to follow Anita's advice. That harsh, clashing title turns out to be part of the point. The novel is set in a small French town in the north, towards Belgium. The time must be the late thirties. The original cruel, Cornelius, was German but has spent four-fifths of his life in France. He became naturalised before the First World War, though he still barely speaks French and is losing his German. Pipe-smoking and largely mute, he has scratched out an existence making baskets. He married the illegitimate daughter of a woman from the South who kept a bar on the canal. The Cruels, there are two daughters, Anna and Elizabeth, and one son, Joseph, have expanded the bar to include an épicerie and a bargee's chandlery. They live at the very edge of town, near a lock, where the yellow trams turn round. The complex genealogy, legal status and timeline are important. Despite several decades of scrupulously honest existence, Joseph has done his French military service, the cruels are still regarded as outsiders. They confirm this themselves when every Sunday they walk into town to the Protestant temple. They survive mainly on the passing trade of bargees, 
who, while scarcely enlightened, lack the prejudices of the town, and are happy to stock up Shekrul. The family's precarious existence is contrasted with that of their only friends, another German immigrant family, the Schuffs, who run a butter and cheese shop. They have assimilated better. Only French is spoken in the shop, and it seems that the town has decided, partly from the name, that the Schuffs are in fact Dutch. On such nuances do lives and livelihoods depend. Cousin Hans from Germany arrives to stay. Hans regards himself as a pure cruel, and is everything the impure cruels are not. He is cynical, mendacious, scrounging, loud-mouthed. His first act on moving in is to violently seduce the underage Elizabeth. He borrows money from his aunt and bullies the timid Joseph. He goes to see Pierre Schuff and asks for money. A large part of his father's fortune, he claims, is now tied up in Belgium, and he needs to wire 5,000 francs immediately in order to release it. Nowadays, this scam arrives regularly into email inboxes, and it still works, but it's good to see the original face-to-face -face version. There is, of course, no money in Belgium. Hans's behaviour alarms the French cruels, because he blatantly and deliberately offends against the first law of the immigrant. Do not draw attention to yourself. And by drawing attention to himself, Hans Kruhl also draws attention to those impure relatives of his who live beside the canal where the town runs out. Simonon lays out with ruthless literary exactitude the way in which selfish, conscience-free greed exploits modest, hospitable decency which is, I realise, just as I put it into those words, a frequent Brucknerian theme. As is the wider notion that those, like Hans, who take life less seriously than others, are better equipped to survive it. But this is seminal, so there is less interiority and more violence. I can't remember the body of a raped and murdered girl being fished out of a canal in Anita's work. Yet, though this is a romandure, we are never far from Brucknerland, the world of the immigrant, of navigating cautiously in a foreign country, foreign even if you have been born and done your military service there. I can imagine Anita admiring Simonon's grasp of the restless dynamic between autochthon and immigrant, especially when anything goes wrong. An outbreak of typhoid? Even though Joseph is a victim, he is deemed the carrier. Virtue is turned into vice. If the immigrant doesn't work hard, he's a scrounger. If he does, he's money-minded and avaricious. Simonon well understands what spurs and then animates a rising swell of racist indignation. A stone is thrown through a window. A picket is mounted by children. A drunken woman establishes a false narrative. A doorstep is smeared with shit. A dead cat is found hanging from the bell pool. The words assassin and amour are daubed on the shop's blind. The police are only half helpful. As one investigating officer says to another, it smells of kraut in here. The cruels decide, not inaccurately, that Hans is the bringer or at least aggravator of their misfortune, and attempt to pack him back to Germany. But Hans declines the role of scapegoat. And so the novel moves to a grim conclusion which, while emotionally logical, I doubt you would guess. 
and which I shan't give away. Simon Lees, that wise Belgian sinologist, critic and novelist, rightly noted Simonon's ability to achieve unforgettable results by ordinary means. His language is poor and bare, like the language of the unconscious. It would be difficult to make an anthology of his best pages. He does not have best pages. He only has better novels, in which everything hangs together without a single seam. What typically helps produce his unforgettable results is a tight unity of place and time. In most of Simonon's books, in most of Simonon's books, what might be happening in Paris, let alone the outside world, is rarely a consideration. Chez Cruel is a departure from that norm. The outside world impinges forcefully. Borders are crossed. The novel even ends in Italy. We hear of Hans in Belgium and Hans in Germany. And what is his stated reason for refusing to return there? It made my head jolt back. Because there was talk of putting me in a concentration camp. The words camp de concentration occur four times in the novel. I checked the date of the book. Simonon finished it at La Rochelle on the 27th of July, 1938. What was all this about most people being ignorant of concentration camps until after the war? It is there in the popular fiction of the day. Books travel strangely through time, sometimes remaining just themselves, sometimes picking up an extra charge and weight from the circumstances in which they are read. And I was reading Chez Cruel not many months after the Brexit vote and its immediate social repercussions. The wall daubings, the increase in racial abuse, the throwing of shit at foreign women the arson of a halal butcher, the licensed aggro of English patriots, the murder of a Pole in Harlow. Even in my strongly Remain part of London, I noticed some of its effects. For instance, the way Eastern European builders now lowered their voices rather than shouting at one another in cheery Slavic accents. I am well into bus-pass age, but am largish and evidently white, and felt abashed when receiving nervous glances on pavements from smaller, less white women. The world of Chez is a common, shared one. And some of those Polish builders might have come here from the same place, if for more commercial reasons, as did Bruckner's parents, back before the Hitler War, as some used to call it. Referendum Day fell strangely, smack between the birthday of my Francophile father 22nd of June, and my Francophile mother, 24th of June, both long dead. That evening, after the polls had closed, there were eight of us at supper. All had voted Remain, while feeling little enthusiasm for those who had publicly argued our cause. Cameron, Osborne, and the incredible vanishing man who was leading Labour. But both campaigns had been rampantly mendacious and built on the armature of fear. Towards the end, I asked the table, If it all goes wrong, who will you hate the most? Gove, Johnson, or Farage? Gove was beneath numerical notice. Johnson got seven votes. I put my own marker against Farage. In the context of Brexit, Johnson seemed to me just a chancer, whereas Farage had been poisoning the well for years, with his fake man-in-pub chaff, his white paranoia, and low to mid-level racism. Isn't it hard to hear English spoken on a train nowadays? 
But of course, Nigel can't really be a racist, can he? Because he's got a German wife. Except that she's now chucked him out for the usual reasons. Without Farage's covert and overt endorsement, the smothered bonfire of xenophobia would not have burst into open flame on the 23rd of June. After the murder of Arkadiusz Zsozsvik in Harlow, there was television footage of a group of Polish mourners. They spoke quietly and decently. Don't draw attention to yourself. But I was glad when a youngish Pole said, And there is one other person responsible. I won't give his name. Pause. Yes, I will. It's Nigel Farage. A day or two after the referendum, Farage proclaimed that we had got our independence back without a shot being fired. Yes, apart from the three fired into Joe Cox MP from the homemade gun of an English patriot. Not that I didn't nearly vote for Johnson, at the dinner referendum, that is. For years I'd been vaguely in favour of him. He was sui generis, as he would doubtless have put it himself. Funny on have I got news for you, unpompous. He hadn't done much as London Mayor, except to rebrand Ken's red bicycle project as Boris's blue bicycle project, but he didn't seem an objectionable cheerleader for the city. And he couldn't possibly be racist either, could he, because he's more than a bit Turkish himself. Then there was a slight family reason for cutting him some slack. Whenever anyone slagged him off in my presence, I would say, well, my brother taught about twenty future MPs when he was at Oxford, and he told me that Boris was the nicest as well as the cleverest of them. At the time, it felt like an answer. No longer. My brother now lives in France. His British pension has fallen in value by ten percent or more, and he's become a bargaining chip. Maybe his ex-pupil could post him some cash. When Johnson covered Brussels for the Daily Telegraph, he was part of a decades-long press campaign, whose main features were straight bananas, unelected bureaucrats. Does no one ever wonder about Britain's unelected bureaucrats? And high-end expenses. Whereas our MPs merely put in for duck houses, moat clearance and jumbo TV sets. And as anti-Zionism may often disguise anti-Semitism, so Europhobia proves a handy disguise for wider xenophobia. But of course it wasn't just the press. Few Prime Ministers in the years since Edward Heath signed us into the EEC have found it either natural or politically expedient to enthuse about Europe. I grew tired of hearing Major and then Blair insisting that we were at the heart of Europe when we hadn't joined the Euro or signed up to the Schengen Agreement. Politicians never tried to sell Europe to the British people as anything other than an advantageous commercial joint venture. Ours has been an entirely pragmatic membership, never an idealistic one. We never bought into Europe as a grand projet, or even an expression of fraternity. All this makes it hard for many here to imagine that idealism about the EU still has breath and life within Europe. After the Brexit vote, many of my European friends expressed disbelief and astonishment. It seemed to them that we had run mad in the noonday sun. Before 1973, de Gaulle twice blocked Britain's admittance to the community. Oh, we said to ourselves, that's just because he didn't like the way he was treated in London during the war, when Churchill declared that the heaviest cross he had to bear was the Cross of Lorraine. 
Some of de Gaulle's reasons were indeed personal and historical, going back as far as the humiliating Fascida incident of 1898. But his expression of them was precise. The British, he said, should not be allowed to join Europe because they were not communautaires, not community-minded. And now, decades on, we can see that he was right. We have been very unsatisfactory Europeans, the rude boys farting in the corner. Give us this exemption, that opt-out. We want our money back. In 2011, I went to the European Parliament for the first and only time. I was chairing the European Book Prize. It was a time when the European project was under great strain, and there was fear the euro might collapse. Even I, as an outsider, could smell the deep anxiety. At dinner, I was put next to a high German politician whose name I didn't catch. He was lucid and perceptive about the current dangers. At one point, I asked him, Through all this crisis, over the past two or three years, can you think of anything the British have done or said which has been of any help or use to Europe? He considered the question for a while and eventually shook his head, more in sadness than anything else. No, he answered. I later discovered his identity, Martin Schulz, now running against Angela Merkel. As he put it back in October when President of the European Parliament, I refuse to imagine a Europe where lorries and hedge funds are free to cross borders, but citizens are not. Liam Fox resigned on the 14th of October 2011, four days before I won the Booker Prize. There was probably no causal connection, but it meant that my publishers could buy me the original of a Peter Brooks cartoon which appeared in The Times. It shows a House of Commons green bench, deserted apart from two figures. Fox, eyes staring and face aghast, is reading out his resignation speech, while next to him a colleague hides behind a book. It is, appropriately and gratifyingly, the sense of an ending. The cause of Fox's resignation seemed to me utterly career-terminating, and it struck me as odd, as it usually does when ministers resign, that if their duplicitous actions deem them unworthy of representing their country, then why, why are they still deemed worthy of representing their constituents? Does the electorate deserve some lower level of trust? But then the days of ministers resigning and really resigning, Perfumer, Carrington, seem to be gone. Arse sticks to seat like never before. Look at Boris Johnson sacked by the Times for fabricating a quote, sacked by a Conservative Party leader for lying, openly lying in the referendum, that NHS pledge, the zillion Turkish immigrants on their way here, and he ends up as Foreign Secretary. True, Sir Henry Wotton famously defined an ambassador as an honest gentleman sent to lie abroad for his country, but that hardly implies that the man in overall charge of Her Majesty's ambassadors should trade so often in professional porkies. I remember talking to a Tory insider when Cameron and Johnson were first seen as rivals for the leadership. Boris thinks David's a lightweight, and David thinks Boris is a loose cannon, said my source. And the trouble is, they're both right. Now Johnson, Fox and David Davis, another whose career seemed well washed up, are in charge of our Euro negotiations. 
On the eve of the referendum, Johnson claimed that Europe's plan for us was like Hitler's. Gove also used the Nazi analogy. Along with John Redwood, he of the velveteen disdain, Johnson has been a big proponent of the Prosecco and cheese argument, that the Italians and the French will be so scared of losing the British market for these staples that they'll be obliged to cut us a deal. In late 2016, Johnson claimed that the British drank 300 million litres of Prosecco a year. Unfortunately, the entire production of Prosecco in the previous year came to only 270 million litres, of which the UK sales were 40 million. Now, puffed up with promotion but still idle about fact, he seems as lightweight as he is loose. And that ruffled Etonian charm doesn't work so well outside Anglo-Saxon countries. As Guy Verhofstadt and Wolfgang Schäuble put it, in weary disbelief after their first encounter with him, we are both accustomed to having a high degree of respect for foreign ministers. Hans Kruhl doesn't allude to the Nazis or the general political situation in Germany, but he does talk about the Jews. It's worth quoting the exchange at length. Joseph is complaining to Hans that every time something bad happens in the town, the Kruhls always get the blame just because we're foreigners. Hans, like a man who is the repository of truth and has no doubts about it, insists that Joseph is wrong. It's not because you're foreigners. It's because you aren't foreign enough, or else that you're too foreign. Joseph is baffled. We aren't foreign enough. Hans explains further. Or too foreign. You aren't open enough about it. You're ashamed to be foreign, just like you're ashamed to be Protestant. You move in here and want to be just like everyone else. You imitate them cack-handedly, but you know it'll never work. And they sense that. I bet that on the 14th of July you fly more flags than everyone else, and on Corpus Christi you scatter rose petals in the street. People resent that more than if you did nothing, if you just simply lowered your blinds. Joseph objects, but if we were more aggressive, that would make it worse. Hans replies, it's not a question of being aggressive, just sure of yourselves. Like when the Jews go and live somewhere else. They're not ashamed of their names or their noses. They're not ashamed of their business sense or their greed. That's how it is, and not otherwise. So much the worse for other people and what they think. They live among themselves and don't care if kids pull faces at them in the street. Simenon signed off the novel four months before Kristallnacht, and Hans is hardly being set up as a repository of any truth other than his own. But Joseph's bafflement reflects the insoluble dilemma of the immigrant. Damned if you do, try to be like them. Damned if you don't, and equally damned if you take up some midway position. Here in Britain today, there is a dismal clarity to the official position. You save children from a burning house, you get chucked out. You care for your British husband and British children for decades, but also spend time abroad caring for your relatives, you get chucked out. You misplace a comma while filling up an 85-page form or fail to come up with a historic gas bill, you get chucked out. Some, either fearful or disgusted, are already chucking themselves out in order to keep their families together. But this is not exactly a change of policy. 
The Home Office under Theresa May routinely appealed all the way to the top in any immigration case that went against them. Now it is as if the Brexit vote has given them permission to purify the country, except when there is popular outcry and mass petition in a particular case. And what is the Brexiteers' vision of our future purified nation? It seems to be a mixture of Merry England, Toy Town and Singapore. Outward-looking in the sense of open for business, which tends to mean up for sale. Inward-looking in other senses. Morally depleted by cutting ourselves off from Europe and sheltering beneath Trump's fragrant armpit. What might we end up as? Perhaps a kind of bigger Belgium, with quasi-American values. Also, as Belgium might be, torn into separate nations again. Do we seriously think that those who voted for Brexit are going to be better off under this state-shrinking government? I can't recall the slogan, poorer but happier, being used. That the NHS will be properly funded? That the increasing numbers on zero hours will not be exploited further? That the old winners will not be the new, even bigger winners? Do we seriously believe that Mrs May will construct a country that works for everyone? To the pieties of our current political elite, I much prefer the old Portuguese proverb, if shit were valuable, the poor would be born without arses. Back in the run-up to the referendum, English patriots, in the guise of football supporters at the European Championships, marched round Marseille chanting, Fuck off Europe, we're voting out. Similarly, Mrs May doesn't like too much cosmopolitanism. If you believe you're a citizen of the world, she contends, you're a citizen of nowhere. Simon Lees, who was born Pierre Reichmans in Belgium and proceeded via Taiwan, Singapore and Hong Kong to Australia, where he lived from 1970 until his death in 2014, understood both the paradox of parochialism and the danger of national culture. That paradox had been well expressed by Borges, the writer who was born in a big country is always in danger of believing that the culture of his native country encompasses all his needs. Paradoxically, he therefore runs the risk of becoming provincial. Lees elaborated on this. Just as Goethe lived in Weimar, then a town somewhat smaller than Quienbien, but kept up not just with the English and French literary scenes, but with the latest Chinese novels as well, so Cosmopolitanism is more easily achieved in a provincial setting, whereas life in a metropolis can insidiously result in a form of provincialism. He concludes, Culture is born out of exchanges and thrives on differences. In this sense, national culture is a self-contradiction and multiculturalism a pleonasm. The death of culture lies in self-centeredness, self-sufficiency and isolation. Boris Johnson suavely assures both us and Johnny Foreigner out there that we are leaving the European Union, but we are not leaving Europe. Well, it depends what that means, and also what Europe decides. But I would rather listen to the young female bassoonist whom I ran into as I was coming out of the polling station on referendum day. She had played in period orchestras all over Europe. We talked about music and literature, and she told me how Mahler and Shostakovich wrote for the bassoon. 
When she mentioned enjoying a short story of mine, I replied, soppy stern, that I hoped she understood that none of my readers were allowed to vote for Brexit. God no, she said. All the musicians she knew had had their lives enriched by being in the European Union and the interchanges it had made possible. They were shitting themselves that the vote might go the wrong way. Like many Remainers, I feel complicated emotions about Brexit, as I did about the Iraq war. Those of us who were against the war wanted Bush and Blair and the MPs who voted for it to have their faces rubbed in their own folly, for them to be proved massively, damagingly wrong, to enjoy vast hubris, while at the same time we hoped that this would not involve too many British soldiers or innocent civilians or innocent Iraqi soldiers getting killed. We also hoped that the coalition had a victory strategy and that the wider regional consequences would not be too disastrous. And look how all that turned out. Similarly, I now hope that, as seems likely, the smug confidence of the leading Brexiteers and their arrogantly aggressive pre-negotiation attitudes will run up against European reality and be well punished. That Europe will make us stump up all we owe, that a hard Brexit will ensue, that the European Union will make us wait as long as Canada had to wait for a trade deal, that Trump will make us a humiliatingly America-first offer, that those parts of left-behind Britain who voted to quit the EU will discover that the bright new future without all those Poles and Romanians and Bulgarians means that they will now have to pick strawberries, grade potatoes and care for the demented and that, capitalism being what it is, the wages won't be any higher, that the good folk of Cornwall and Ebervale, who overwhelmingly voted leave despite major EU funding both past and present, and whose councillors immediately petitioned central government to match those lost foreign handouts, will be told that, unfortunately, the money has run out, and so on. But I also wish that somehow my country comes out of it all without having too much collateral damage. The Iraq war is not an encouraging parallel. And another thing, can we please get over the solemn voice mantra of the people have spoken? The people were asked a question by an overconfident political elite, allowed a monosyllabic reply, whereupon a slightly different version of the same elite chooses to interpret that monosyllable in a way that fits their own political and internal party interests. As for the much-invoked will of the people, there was, obviously, no common will. And the will of the people leads all too easily to enemies of the people, that Stalinist phrase now embraced by the Daily Mail, the Pravda of the Right. That squalid headline resulted in extra security being required for the judiciary. But at least it's English judges being protected by English policemen against English patriots. So that's all right then. The day after the vote, I was walking in my local park when a man cycled towards me straight over a no-cycling sign. I gave him a routine, unthinking glare, to which he responded with a shout of, Oi, Flaubert, where are you now? A rare North London cry of Brexiteering triumphalism. The following day, the English rugby team beat the Wallabies in Australia to register a 3-0 series victory. An Australian newspaper headlined the result. 
Now another continent hates you too. We shouldn't underestimate this reaction to our current national trajectory. We have our sentimental vision of how others see us as correct, humorous, eccentric, polite, tolerant, phlegmatic, and so on. Très British. But historically, they have equally, if not more often, thought of us as cold, arrogant, violent, self-interested, racist, and hypocritical. A Frenchwoman friend, who has lived in England for 30 years, told me in the days after the referendum that she was thinking of moving back to France. And though she is the gentlest of persons, and not at all interested in politics, she added, Now people will hate you again. Note the again. We may be in for some hard days, some jours durs. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can register for free and open up our entire online archive for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open.